Our second lesson here this morning is from uh, John's Gospel, the 12th chapter. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, we had a little mishap with our bulletin delivery from the printer this week. So uh, if you see someone sitting near you or next to you and they don't have one of these in front of them, maybe just kind of share with them. We can uh, all read the gospel together that way. I'm going to read it to you anyway, if you'll, uh, if you'll now hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Open our ears, O Lord, that we would hear the gospel. May your Holy Spirit be the one who teaches us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We don't know a whole lot about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They are siblings who apparently live in their family's home. Perhaps their parents have passed away. And it would seem that they were likely those with whom Jesus often stayed. Were they those who extended the hospitality of their home on a regular basis and financially supported Jesus' itinerant ministry? It would seem likely yes to both of these. We get hints and clues in that direction from other Gospels and also from some of just the historical context that uh, lies behind this scene. And it also appears to be the case that Martha, Mary, and Lazarus were disciples of Jesus, not traveling disciples like the twelve, but those who had taken their place at Jesus' feet to learn from him. The broader context also suggests that Jesus was quite comfortable with them. And they were comfortable with him. There's a familiarity between Jesus and these three that's suggested by the language, by their being mentioned elsewhere in the Gospels, and the social, cultural backdrop that gives us clues in that direction. These are people who at once learned from and supported Jesus, and those with whom I think Jesus could relax as friends. Flashback here with me just a little bit. A little time has passed since that miracle 
that, of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And in that intervening period of time, Jesus had probably retreated again across the Jordan to avoid the religious leadership who was becoming increasingly hostile toward him. Raising Lazarus from the dead seemed to be the last straw for the religious leadership. Rather than being curious as to whether Jesus just might be the anointed Messiah from God sent to rule Israel in perfect shalom, rather than stopping to be curious about that, especially in light of Jesus bringing forth Lazarus from the dead, instead of stopping to be curious even, they were so afraid of Jesus' popularity with the people that they imagined that he would get noticed by Rome, and then Rome would be afraid of his popularity with the people, and then in turn Rome would rout Jerusalem and put the religious leadership and their wealthy cohorts out on their ear. In other words, the status quo of appeasing the empire by collaborating with them suited the elites and the religious leadership just fine. So raising Lazarus was the last straw for them. The die had been cast. Jesus would be done away with soon and somehow. Jesus, of course, knew this. He knew this was headed his way, and he was heading into that. But tonight, tonight was a night to be with trusted friends. I wonder what the overall feeling for that evening was. I think we have to assume that there was a great deal of joy, right? I mean, after all, Jesus had raised Lazarus. Jesus had raised Lazarus in a house that once, a few days earlier, had smelled of death, now smelled of perfume. But I suspect also that the joy was mingled with sorrow. I mean, isn't a great deal of life that way? Sorrow and joy in a fallen world, always mingling together. Jesus knew that his life was under threat, and so did Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Jesus was one who had to be stopped. Well, it's certainly joy and sorrow that are symbolized in Mary's extravagant anointing. Had she planned this upon knowing that Jesus was coming to dinner? Or had the emotion of the evening simply overwhelmed her and swept her back to her closet where she had $20,000 worth of perfume that she would spontaneously pour over Jesus' feet? as a way of honoring him. Did she actually buy it for his burial? Or is Jesus choosing his words to give a meaning to the event that was unknown to her? It certainly feels spontaneous, the way it comes to us in the narrative. Spontaneous joy sometimes does overwhelm us, doesn't it? You may be with your friends or your loved ones, And you realize that God has given you these relationships that bless you profoundly. That may have even saved your life. 
or at the very least, helped you to flourish and be more and more of your true self. Yes, sometimes we are swept up in that feeling of joy, and it is good to stop and celebrate and give honor extravagantly so, and give thanks to God and to those who have blessed us. I don't think we do that enough, really. I think it embarrasses us sometimes to say to someone, you and your friendship, you and your love mean all the world to me. We have this um, little refrain in our evening prayers at home and you know, it, I'm not saying I remember it every night, but when I was working through something, a homily or something, so, sometime, I, I thought to myself, a lovely refrain for a family to pray with a child is to thank God for the child, the gift that they are to the family, but beyond that, the gift that they are to the world. The... Mary's act here means so much, and we'll keep talking about it a little bit here, but at the very least, it means that we should stop and be extravagant in our response to God's love and mercy and the friendships that he gives us. Mary gives us that gift here, that model example of an extravagant response to the goodness of God. And don't worry about what others will think. Just have that extravagant response. But Mary's joyful act is, as we say, tinged with sorrow. As Jesus points out that her act of joyful worship symbolizes the anointing he will soon receive upon his burial. Time is running out for him. As a story, I find this whole episode absolutely riveting and fascinating. John has placed it right before Jesus' triumphal entry, our Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week. The raising of Lazarus and the reactions to it make up the penultimate moment of Jesus' ministry. This is an important frame in John's gospel as things move towards Jerusalem. And what I find most fascinating is that all of the drama of the story centers around the woman Mary of Bethany. John signals to us that Mary's act of anointing is a kind of guide for us through this portion of his gospel by using the literary device of prolepsis at the beginning of chapter 11, one chapter before what we read this morning. He uses prolepsis to clue us in. When Martha and Mary send a note to Jesus across the Jordan to tell him that Lazarus is sick to the point of death, this is how John tells it. Quote, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. 
Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. That's how John begins chapter 11, by talking about something that hasn't happened yet. By talking about something that surely they all knew anyway. And he's saying, pay attention to this. It will be your guide through the next two chapters. By telegraphing to his readers and listeners that Mary's extravagant act is coming up soon, an act which so many of his readers had heard about. I just told you that. Sometimes I remember things that I wrote, and then I look back and I read them to you again. Anyway, um, John's telling us we should pay careful attention to Mary in what follows. And we do need Mary and her pound of perfume to guide us. Because chapter 11 and 12 are chocked full of disturbing events. And John invites us, I think, on the way to Jerusalem. And John invites us this morning towards the end of Lent to lay our hearts bare and consider to what extent we are like Mary. And yes, also, To what extent we are not. The swirl of drama and events surrounding the miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead. The swirl of drama is dizzying. The raising of Lazarus is the seventh sign in John's gospel that Jesus is the Messiah. It is the sign of all signs in that Jesus gives Lazarus new life beyond the grave. But as we've mentioned earlier, the sign is met by the religious leadership with fear and a plan to kill Jesus. They're not even curious, as we've mentioned, about whether Jesus might be God's anointed. Their reaction shows us, shows us that power can blind us to the extent that we will, as human beings, call good evil and evil good if it threatens our grip on power. Also in the swirl is the immediate negative reaction to Mary's extravagant act of worship, which reminds us that deep within our brokenness is an allergy to God's extravagant grace and love, an allergy that is so severe we want to avert our eyes, call it too good to be true, or even despise it. And that's why I love that, you know, Mary's pouring out of the perfume is a scene that's meant to disrupt. It's a scene that's meant to disturb our sensibilities. It's like, what are you doing? $20,000 in one, well, four minutes? What are you doing? And the intimacy of it is a scene that makes you wonder, is it too... It's just meant to mess with you because God's grace messes with us. God's grace embarrasses us. When the prodigal son, last week we talked about the prodigal son, when the father runs out to meet the son, he dishonors himself. No landed aristocrat runs, much less to meet the one who brought shame to the family. God's grace is meant to mess with our feelings because deep down inside, our brokenness makes us resistant to it. 
And we need these images, these these radical acts of extravagant love and grace that make us uncomfortable to remind us that deep down inside we're so uncomfortable with God's grace and mercy. And that's why we need each other to remind each other to put ourselves in this posture where we just receive, where we just receive, where we just agree with Jesus. (laughs) He says, (laughs) wouldn't you love to hear it when he says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. That's what he says to us so many times. Is leave it alone. Leave your pride alone. Leave your self-righteousness alone. Leave your envy alone. Leave your desire to please me with your moral achievements. Leave it alone. And come and receive. Come and receive. Love and acceptance and grace and mercy. John doesn't pull any punches here in the way that he sets up so sharp a contrast between Mary's anointing and just about everything else going on around Jesus in these two chapters. There's Judas... Come on, we would have at least said Judas has a point here, right? There's Judas, and, and then we're reminded what it is that God likes in worship, and we think back to Cain and Abel, and Cain's not even curious as to why Abel's sacrifice is acceptable before God. All he wants to do is murder his brother. You know, that's... I think you can hear an echo of that in Judas's lack of curiosity around Mary's extravagance here. He's already cast his lot with those who will seek to murder Jesus. I think the reason why, and I hinted at this earlier, that John doesn't pull any punches here is I think he wants our hearts to be laid bare as we think about how often we might side with power We might side with power even when the power calls evil good. We might just side with it if it's to our benefit. We might just side with Judas when we're particularly resistant to God's grace. But consistent with the message of the gospel that God's love will always beat down our stubbornness is the fact that Mary indeed owns this penultimate frame in John's gospel. Mary owns it. For in Mary's act of anointing Jesus' feet, we see foreshadowed what Jesus will be doing just a few days later when he washes the disciples' feet and says to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Very truly I tell you, 
Servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Friends, as we approach the end of Lent and look forward to the triumphal entry that signals the hidden victory of the cross that then leans us into Easter. As we think about what kind of Lent we've had, may the Spirit break our hearts until we can respond to God's grace and love in the way that Mary does. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.